Oh Lord, we live in the desert. And we come to you today dry and parched, thirsty. Refresh us by your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. Grace to you and peace from the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, as you count your blessings so far in this new year of 2019, I hope that one of the blessings you are counting is the wonderful rains that God has sent upon Arizona over the last couple of months. The rains here, the snow up in the higher country, not only, of course, causes everything to grow and and bloom and sprout and beautiful wildflowers to appear on the hills, but It also, of course, resupplies the reservoirs from which we derive our water that we need every day. And certainly we all understand how important water is to life. When we don't get enough of it, we can get tired, we can actually get dizzy, anxious, irritable, headaches can easily come upon you. Joint and muscle aches can result, and other complications can arise as well. Obviously, we all need lots and lots of water. We are in a sermon series on the book of Exodus from the Old Testament, and today we're looking at Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to explore this chapter with these six questions in mind. Who, what, where... Why, how, and when? We're going to take them one at a time. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The first question is who? Who is in this part of the story? First of all, it's the Israelites, of course. The Israelites were uh, uh, those who had lived in Egypt near the Nile River for some 430 years. Of course, they had been made slaves by the Pharaoh of Egypt but at least they were able to live by the waters of the Nile. Even in antiquity all the way through today, the waters of the Nile are the lifeblood of Egypt. And water was extremely important to the culture. Water. It seems like the Israelites had lots and lots of water experiences, not only in Egypt with the Nile, but as they left Egypt as well. Recall the story from last week. They come to the Red Sea and are trapped with the Egyptian armies approaching from behind, and God, through Moses, parted the waters of the Red Sea, and they went across on dry ground. Can you imagine those tall walls of water on each, of si- each side of them. And then they see those walls of water come crashing down upon the Egyptian armies, destroying them, assuring the Israelites that they were free to go. Water, water everywhere. The who of this part of the story in Exodus 17 also includes Moses, of course. And if anybody deserved the title of the wonderful wizard of waterworks... It would be Moses. He just seems to do amazing things with water, with God's power and help, of course. Even Moses' name has something to do with water. Moses means to be drawn out, that is, drawn out of water. And we recollect that when Moses was just a newborn baby, 
His mother put him in a basket and set him into the waters of the Nile River among the reeds. And the daughter of Pharaoh drew him out of the water and adopted him as her own child. Years later, Moses would meet his future wife, Zipporah, when he was drawing water out of a well for her father's flocks to have some water to drink. She ended up working for Zipporah's father, and Zipporah became his wife. In Exodus 15, 25, we see another of wonderful Moses' waterworks. This is the story of where uh, Moses comes across a pool of water that is bitter water. And he throws a piece of wood into the water, and it purifies it, makes it drinkable water. That's just a rather amazing thing. And that's the who that we see, Israel and the marvelous Moses in this part of the story. Now we come to the what of the story, the what. The Israelites, as you know, left Egypt back in chapter 14. And now they have been in the Sinai Desert for a month. That photo was actually taken in the Sinai Desert. I don't know what you think, but that looks an awful lot like somewhere right around here in Arizona, doesn't it? You don't have to drive too far from here to see something like that. Dry desert. The what of the story was a lot of rocks, a lot of sand and dirt, but also no water. No water. Exodus 17 verse 1 says, there was no water for the people to drink, and of course, they got thirsty, understandably. They got thirsty. We all know what it means to be thirsty in the full sense of the term. There's emotional thirst, where maybe you say to yourself, This hurts so bad it feels like chewing glass. There is relational thirst. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, when it comes to love, I have struck out millions of times. Will I ever find love? And most significantly, there is spiritual thirst. Where maybe you say, God, if you're so good, why are things so bad in my life? Why do I hurt so much? we end up finding ourselves being rather spiritually parched, dry, thirsty in our souls. Well, we go back to the story of Moses, and he, we hear Moses crying out to the Lord. He cries out, what should I do with these people? Because they're complaining about having no water to drink. Moses says, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. They're ready to stone me. What do we do when we're overcome with thirst? Well, just like the Israelites, we want to stone somebody. We resort to rocks, and those rocks take all different kinds of forms. Do you remember the uh, scene in the movie Forrest Gump 
when Jenny begins throwing rocks at her childhood home, when Jenny runs out of rocks and falls down on the ground, what does Forrest Gump say to her? He says, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Well, friends, Forrest Gump is wrong on that. He is dead wrong. There are all too many rocks. We thirst so much for love that when we don't get it, we start throwing rocks at people. Verbal missiles, nuclear words, silent stares, angry text messages. There are always enough rocks. And I think this breaks God's heart deeply. That's the what. Rocks, sand, dirt, and no water. The next question is where? Where are they? Well, they're in a place called Rephidim. Exodus 17 verse 1 says, They camped at Rephidim. Where is that? Well, no one really knows exactly where Rephidim is. Archaeologists haven't been able to pinpoint it. Historians haven't been able to figure out exactly where it is. The best we can say is that it is somewhere close to Mount Sinai, where Moses would later be given the Ten Commandments. We don't know where Rephidim is. But then again, I would propose that you know exactly where Rephidim is. And so do I. You see, Rephidim is that place in our lives where we are burned out with fear too deep to manage, where loneliness is too heavy to bear, and our doubts are too many to number. Rephidim is that place where relationships are dehydrated, dried up, almost dead. Rephidim is where mothers are ready to throw in the towel. Children don't have any friends and husbands are working 75-hour work weeks and the family is disintegrating. Others have spotted Rephidim when they moved far away from family and community and ended up feeling isolated like in a place like Arizona. And Rephidim is even found in the church, the place where, try as we might, things just stay dry, dry, dry as dust. Well, the people get to Rephidim, and they cry. And at Rephidim, we cry too. We cry with the psalmist, Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul pants for you. At Rephidim, we echo the anguish of Psalm 63, which says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let me ask you, does it, does it feel like you are camped at Rephidim these days? 
the next question is why. Why do we become so thirsty? Why do we become so thirsty? We, we pick up some insights from verse 3 of chapter 17 where it says, but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Why did you take us up out of Egypt? You know what they're really saying? They're really saying, if we had stayed in Egypt, it might have been better, so much better. Why do we become so thirsty? Four little words. It might have been. It might have been. They said it might have been better in Egypt. It might have been. Those words were made famous in 1856 when John Greenleaf Whittier wrote a poem that he called Maud Muller. It's a poem about a young woman named Maud Muller who one day meets a young man and after their encounter, each of them ponders what it would be like to marry the other. But the moment passes and both Maud and the man end up in very sad marriages and both anguish over what was lost on that day so long ago. And at the end of the poem, Whittier writes, of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. It might have been. And the Israelites use those words in the worst possible way. They're saying it might have been better back in Egypt than out here in the desert. Oh, my goodness. Are they really that forgetful? Well, aren't we sometimes that forgetful? But how forgetful on their part. Have they completely forgotten that back in Egypt, slavery was no fun at all? Have they completely forgotten about the torment that they had been in for hundreds of years? And have they completely forgotten God's miraculous deliverance out of slavery and his promise to take them to a grand and wondrous land filled with wondrous blessings, the land he promised to give Abraham? Let me ask you, are you forgetting all that God has done for you? Or are you remembering all that God has done for you and holding on to those remembrances as sources of refreshment? Who, what, where, why? The next question is how. How can we get water? How can we get water? Well, it's going to take a staff. For the Israelites, it would have to be Moses' staff, the staff that went back and forth between being a stick and a snake back in Egypt, the same staff that struck the Nile River and turned its water into blood, the same staff that stretched out over the Red Sea to divide its waters so that the people of Israel could walk through on dry land. 
for the Israelites in the desert, it would take Moses' staff to bring them water. We read in verses 5 and 6. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. This next photo was taken in the Sinai Desert. That rock that is featured there in the foreground is referred to by some as split rock. Now, we don't know if that's the same rock that Moses struck and split and water came out, but some think maybe it is. It's kind of fun to speculate. Maybe it is. But make no mistake, Moses struck a rock and God provided water. Refreshing water. In 1 Corinthians 10 in the New Testament, St. Paul reflects on this very story and he connects the rock to Christ Jesus. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul connects the rock to Christ. How so? Well, when the Israelites needed water, what did God say? Strike the rock. And when the world needed the life-giving waters of salvation. God the Father said, strike the rock. And Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the rock of ages, was struck in your place and in mine that we might receive eternal refreshment. In Matthew 27, we get that part of the story Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff, catch that, a staff in his right hand. And then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The staff that the soldiers had put in Jesus' hand in mockery was then used to strike his thorn-crowned head again and again. And after he was hanging upon the cross, then the rock was split by another staff, the one that was part of a Roman soldier's spear. John tells us in the 19th chapter of his book, one of the soldiers 
pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Water. Just think of it, water flowing from the one whose lips are cracked and parched and dry. Water is flowing from the one whose body writhed in pain under the hot Palestinian sun and heat. Water flowed from the one who cried out from the cross, I thirst. Strike the, wa- strike the rock, God said, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And they did. And it flowed. And we live as a result. The last question is when? When does this water flow? When does it come to me and to you? When does it quench my longing, aching heart, soul, and mind? Well, friends, it is precisely because Jesus loves you so very, very, very much that his living, life-giving, soul-renewing water flows directly from the cross to you. When? Right now. Right now. So drink deep, friends. Drink deep today and be refreshed in Jesus, your Savior, your rock. Amen. And may the peace of God which passes human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.